Okay. <laughs> this says it all, really. <laughs> um, I hope you like this. Uh, this is a nice sort of introduction to my talk, this, this lovely little cartoon. Uh, so... Culture to the child and chimpanzee, well, here we have the both, except uh, the zoologically astute amongst you will realise that the chimpanzee has an awfully long tail, uh, but <coughs> uh, we'll do for our purposes. And what I want to persuade you of is a couple of things. First of all, that there are similarities, quite fundamental similarities, in the cultural capacities of chimpanzees and uh, our own species, children like this. And because we're sister species, that allows us to actually make some inferences about our cultural ancestor, the shared ancestor between ourselves and chimpanzees living several million years ago. So I've got an evolutionary theme, and that also applies to the fact that, of course, the little character on the right, although to begin with, they both here look to be picking up a bit of culture the same. They've seen this is what you do with this kind of thing, and they're, they're trying, to, trying to do it. I haven't got it quite right yet. But the character on the right probably, surely one day, will get it right. They'll get the book the right way up. They'll be able to read it. Maybe they'll even write another book which takes us one step forward and it advances culture in a very human way. So... Another evolutionary theme, because there we're talking about the divergence between ourselves and chimpanzees uh, since that common ancestor of a few million years ago. So, mentioning uh, Darwin, uh, as I'm sure you all know, this is the 200th anniversary of uh, Darwin's birth. So, uh, I'm a member of the Scottish Primate Research Group. Here are some of the species we study. I'm just going to insert uh, Darwin in here as an extra non-human primate and go on to <coughs> make the point that... Um, because it's the 200th anniversary, I think, uh, lots of people have come familiar with this uh, wonderful page from one of Darwin's notebooks where he said, I think evolution happened like this. Now, he was talking about biological evolution here, but the insight that perhaps evolution had this branching tree-like structure. And so if we think of biological evolution now, we often think in terms of a tree, like this one from, from Heichel, just a few years after the publication of The Origin, with the apes up here at the top and humans, of course, at the pinnacle. And the first point I want to make is simply that although we might think that culture separates us from this kind of biological world, in a very fundamental way it doesn't. We see Darwinism again because, I'm just taking one particular example of this, culture has many features of Darwinian evolution. It could be tree-like. Here's just one little example. This illustration is actually from Nature a year or two ago, but it was a replication of one that came out, again, just a couple of years after the origin of species, and it shows just one part of human uh, linguistic evolution, the Indo-European languages, English is some, oh, somewhere up here in, in the Germanic group, and that shared an ancestor, as it were, a, a linguistic ancestor, uh, times in the past with other groups such as this Romance language with French and Italian and so on in it. And for those of you who are interested in this kind of analogy, perhaps a really interesting analogy between cultural and biological evolution. I'm just going to put up a couple of references from myself and uh, some of my colleagues, Alex Masudi and Kevin Leyland, where we pursued that in some detail. Okay, well, that's one aspect of what we might mean by the evolution of culture, cultural evolution in that branching kind of way. However, before that, we really need to talk about the evolution of the capacity for culture, and that's been the theme, I think, of several talks today on the animal side. So, um, <clears throat> put up my cartoon again. 
Uh, this little character on the left, well, actually, early in the last century, people did rear chimpanzees, a few chimpanzees, in their own homes alongside children, and they found that chimpanzees would indeed do something like this. They'd see that people uh, did this with books, and they would do it again, flick through it, or they'd see people brushing their teeth. That's what they do. Well, of course, that's quite an artificial kind of situation. It gives us a hint about what these animals are like culturally, but to really discover that, we need to look at them in the wild, when the close attention might be something uh, like this, the close attention to termite fishing. But once we've got a cultural capacity there in a species, then that's where that second sense of cultural evolution, this diversification, can take place. Well, today I'm mostly going to talk uh, just <coughs> about this side of the story, the capacity for culture, the evolution of that. And I'm really going to focus on chimpanzees. I should apologise, really, given my child and chimpanzee in the title. I'm mainly going to talk about chimpanzees in the limited time I've got today. I'll talk much more about our experiments and other studies with children tomorrow. But I'm going to come back and talk about humans. Okay, chimpanzees. Well, a few years ago now, I was um, privileged to uh, be the, the lead author in this collaboration between all the leaders of the long-term chimpanzee study sites across Africa. It's an extraordinary thing if you think 50 years ago, we knew next to nothing about our closest living relative on the planet. Now we know a huge amount, and in this study, we tried to put together what was actually 150 years of information across several long-term study sites to get as definitive an idea as we could of the cultural capacities of chimpanzees, because it was still starting to be realised that chimpanzees behave in different ways across Africa. We took it in two phases, and the first phase was simply to establish a list of potential cultural variants. So we asked all these research leaders, what behaviours are, are really common at your site, and yet you've ha heard that they don't happen elsewhere, or the other way around. You know, they, you've heard these very common behaviours elsewhere in 20 or 30 years at your site, you've never seen it. And that gave us a list of 65 candidate cultural variants or traditions, itself a kind of tribute to the, the inventiveness of chimpanzees. But crucially then, having defined all those very carefully, that list was given back to each research group and they were asked to code them into a number of different categories. The first one was customary, that means pretty much done by everybody in, in the community you study, or at least habitual, done repeatedly by several individuals. And you've heard echoes of this already in, in Susan Perry's talk. At the other extreme are the absent. And there, of course, it's crucial to try and work out if that's with or without an ecological or, or ready environmental explanation, or indeed a genetic explanation. So if we look at a behaviour like this, which is using natural materials like stones and wood to crack nuts, is known in West Africa, but not in East African chimpanzees. Well, if we find there aren't the nuts over there in East Africa, that's not really very interesting, is it? But if those nuts are there, if all the raw materials are there, but they've not discovered it as well, they're not doing it whereas it seems to have spread across an area of West Africa, as it has in this case, then we've got some circumstantial evidence for a tradition, or what we're calling here a cultural variant. And taking that process, we came up reducing this 65 to 39 that met the criterion of being very common in those first two categories somewhere, and yet absent somewhere else, so far as we could see, without any other explanation. That's what's represented here. Each of these panels represents those 39 possibilities, and they're lit up if they're common uh, at the particular site. So there's the definition of what we mean by the cultural variant, and you can't read this at the back, of course, or even probably at the front very well, so uh, if I blow just one of those up for the tire forest, you start to get the idea. The one that are in the lit-up squares are the ones that are customary, in the circles, uh, at least habitual. Some of them couldn't happen at certain sites, that's what that means, but the grey ones here, you know, they all could, indeed they are common somewhere else, but here they're not happening. 
Well, I don't have long today. Uh, I can't. It would be nice to take you all through all 39, the way Susan Perry did so nicely with some of her capuchin uh, behaviours. I'm just going to tell you about one to illustrate this, and that's the first one in the list there. It's called pestle pounding. And here a chimpanzee goes into the top of a, a palm tree. Oh, sorry, what I didn't say was... This covers a whole range of different kind of behaviours, all that stuff. doesn't include vocalisations, but really uh, very extensive repertoire. OK, pestle pounding, the chimpanzee goes into the top of a palm tree, takes off on what's one of the big fronds that's left lying there, and then use that, uses that to pound into the centre, the growing point of the palm tree. And that allows it then to take out uh, a deeper sort of soup, very nutritious mush that it's made there. So here's this extraordinary behaviour uh, going on standing bipedally, really driving into that growing point, a bit like pestle pounding you might see in a local African village. And such a sort of com complex behaviour, and so unusual for chimpanzees, that uh, the researchers at that site would think, well, chimpanzees aren't going to invent that every generation. Surely it's been passed on by social learning. At least that's the inference. And along with that is the fact that, OK, it's common at Bosso, in fact, only at Bosso, and not at some of these other sites. In particular, it's not occurring. Even in the Thai forest, which is just a few hundred kilometres away, same subspecies of chimpanzees, same species of palm trees. As far as one can see, well, it's difficult <coughs> to imagine an environmental or genetic explanation for that. And so the inference is that it's socially learned. And that goes along with other observational evidence like this, where you see this very intense inspection of what an expert uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the past generation is doing, as in this termite fishing here. So, but that is all based on circumstantial evidence, if I can put it that way. And <clears throat> there's always a worry that, well, maybe all that's going on here is that that, that young chimp wants to scrounge some of the termites. And the fact that months or years later it perfects the behaviour, maybe, that, maybe that's due to a lot of trial and error. And even that, think about the palm tree example there, well, maybe there's some subtle difference between the palm trees we haven't detected. You'd really like to do a translocation experiment of the kind that Tim talked about in the parrots. For practical and even ethical reasons, no one's done that yet, maybe no one will with chimpanzees, and so we complemented this work, as Jim said when he was introducing me, uh, with a whole uh, series of behavioural experiments. I'm just going to <coughs> illustrate that with one or two. What we do here is we take a captive group of chimpanzees and we take just one chimpanzee out for a while, we present it with an artificial task modelled on the ones from the wild. So here what we have is a box where you can push this thing here, you can open up a hole here, put in your stick and stab these bits of food here and pull them out. But then we go to another group, we take a chimpanzee out for a while and we show it, same task, but a different way to do it. Here you put in a different kind of tool through this, this hatch here, push the food out through the tunnel and it drops down. Here's another couple of alternatives, the same task but done in very different ways. And at this particular study site we were able to exploit the fact that we have three groups here who can each see the others and three who can each see the others but they can't see this lot. And so what we're able to do is set up the task here, and our expert here, with, with about 10, 11, 12 chimpanzees in the group. If the behaviour then spread to half the group, we moved it here, so these guys could watch through a big window here and see that, and then finally it, moved, then it would move here, then onto here, and finally onto here, so these, we see what these have learned from them, and in turn what they had learned from them. So here we have just colour-coded a graph showing the first model in the first group, one over here doing it one way, one over here doing it the other way, what happened in the group? Did it spread? <clears throat> well, the answer is yes, it did, rather nicely, except that you can see there's one black sheep, as it were, one chimpanzee, who 
having seen that all this method has actually come up with the method of the other group, quite inventive. And, so, and that's the poking thing. So maybe that's just the chimpy thing to do. And if we, follow, if, we, if we run the graph for the whole three groups, we'll find that that purple just kind of takes over. They all end up poking. Well, no. In fact, there's a remarkable stability, even to the extent that by the final group that they've cleaned up, they're only doing what that first model was trained to do and what, indeed, most of the chimps all the way along did. And same here. So we're showing here that they, these chimpanzees can sustain these traditions as they go from group to group to group. Um, and you get the same story with the, this task here. I'll say a bit more about this in our more extensive closed session tomorrow. Okay, here's another representation of that same thing, because the point I want to make here is uh, we've got kind of like a culture, I would say, made up of these three groups, where the behaviour passed from one to the other, uh, for each of these two tasks, because you can see they're colour-coded here, showing the way that those guys did it, and these are colour-coded here, showing the two different, uh, or the, the, the different ways of doing those two tasks. And that's now how we might define a culture here, a culture made up of two different uh, traditions. And here's results from two other uh, <coughs> groups, two other communities at a different place, the Yerk, the Yerk is Centre, each again made up of multiple traditions, and you can just see the colour coding there. I don't have time to explain all that. But the point is that what we've done there is experimentally test, in a way, what we've been inferring as happening in Africa, the notion that in these different communities you have different cultures defined by multiple Traditions, And that's the way, the way I'm distinguishing here between traditions and culture, which you've, you've heard defined in various different ways this afternoon. If you think about the human case, what would distinguish really, if you think about, say, the Scottish culture and, and the culture of, of California, well, what you'd come up with is a whole sort of series initially of different behaviours that are done in different ways, different traditions uh, at, at the sites. Okay, well, that raises the question, well, how has this happened? And we've done a lot of research, a number of experiments on how the transmission uh, takes place. I'm just going to just give you one little video clip to, to give you a flavour of, I think, what, what's important here. This was from a study we did with East African chimpanzees, who you remember don't nutcrack naturally or in, in the wild, but we showed here that they could learn it, so it's certainly not just a, a genetic uh, difference between them. So we could take a chimpanzee like this, who already knows how to nutcrack, and a youngster here <coughs> who doesn't, and then see if they learned. Well, they, they did learn. But what I want to show you here is just this video clip. And <coughs> my introduction to this is uh, just an anecdote about uh, my father-in-law. I used to love watching boxing on the television, and you could see when he was watching, he was doing all this kind of thing. He was, he was <coughs> um, identifying with that boxer and kind of just shadowing what, what the boxer did. Well, uh, watch the little chimpanzee here on the left. The, right, the one on the right is going to do the nutcracking. Okay, I, th I think that kind of says it all. Um, the way in which we do uh, as it were, identify with another individual and so readily step into their shoes and sort of have some appreciation of what it would be bodily to be in their shoes and doing what they're doing, that is kind of at the heart of imitation. It was mentioned earlier on, in fact, in our first talk, there's quite a lot of controversy about whether chimpanzees really do imitate, um, whether it's only humans, children, who really do that and they have a different way of, of copying behaviour. I think to some extent that's true, but this, I think, is quite important. Important, 
um, little illustration of the nature of a mind that is, is inherently really quite cultural in that particular respect. But that's all I'm going to do uh, to say about that topic about transmission, because I just want to step back now, because I've been talking about chimpanzees so much, and give a bit of a kind of bigger overview. I think what I've been talking about can be seen as kind of rather towards the top of what I'm calling here a culture pyramid. This is from a paper by myself and Carol Vine-Shake, which uh, eventuates in cumulative culture. But the start, the base of the pyramid is social information transfer, which I think is very widely spread in the animal kingdom. So here's a little wolf cub uh, sniffing the, the smell from its mother's mouth. From that it gets some cues about what are the good things to eat. That happens in many species. And this is found in very, various birds, fish, <coughs> and even invertebrates like bees here, who will actually learn by observation that you know, these are the flowers to go to today. And in fact, that information tends to be rather transient. So those are the flowers today, but what about tomorrow? It's only then a subset of all that massive social information transfer that goes on in the animal kingdom eventuates in what we call traditions. We've heard traditions defined in various ways. Today there's, there's, there's one. And so that's illustrated by things like um, the dialects of, of birds, and other examples from fish and birds. Uh, but in many of those cases, there's only one tradition being demonstrated. So then we move on to culture, as I defined it here, defined by multiple traditions. And of course, I've been talking today about the example of chimpanzees like that, but I think we've heard other examples from, say, the capuchin monkeys and from cetaceans for that uh, kind of level of, of complexity of culture. But they're only in a subset of cultures in that sense do we get cumulative culture really crucial to ourselves. I mean, look at what's all around us, all our languages. That's our cumulative culture for which there's very little evidence, and would say none at all in, in other species. And it's not just language, of course, it's our material culture. Here's the evolution. This is our best example, really. The evolution of the hammer. Two and a half million years of the evolution of the hammer, step by step, each one building on what went before. So, culture evolves, is, is my conclusion. But in those two steps, remember, distinguishing between the evolution of the capacity for culture, which I think we can trace stepwise in an evolutionary way across the animal kingdom, and then the evolution of culture itself, as it were, cultural things, which we see so clearly illustrated in our own species. And this is also a little advert here because I'm the key, uh, the first organiser of a meeting at the Royal Society next June, a three-day meeting with 24 speakers, some of whom are in the room. This is going to be a really uh, big event... Um, it's at the end of June 2010. So uh, do come. On that point, I'll finish, and I apologise again for not talking so much about children. I, I made some sort of uh, oblique references to them. I guess I will talk to, to the little group tomorrow more of our experiments with them. But I thought you might like to know more about chimpanzees, which perhaps some of you know less about than children. Okay. Thank you.